Welcome to this third episode of Big Questions, Vertical Coaching's podcast. Thank you very much for joining us today. In the studio today, we have none other than Mr. David Collins, the founder of the Foundation Clinic and the Empowering Coaching Training Facilitator, UACT, who's taking the recovery world by storm. So tune in and kick back and enjoy what david has to say he's going to drop some knowledge and if you go right now to www.verticalcoaching.co.za and you click on webinar and you sign up you can enter the coupon code for our webinar which is tomorrow the coupon code will be big questions put that coupon code in and you can get 50 rand off our webinar tomorrow so do that and get involved with the webinar so that'll only cost you 100 rand so it'll be 50 rand off and it'll be 100 rand that will give you an empowerment that you can use for the rest of your life great so let's uh let's delve into this podcast hope it's going to be interesting for all your listeners out there thank you how's the the weather in Joburg at the moment bloody cold it's even chilly down here on the south coast of uh, KwaZulu Natal it'll nip in the air which is really strange for for the coastal time so um so yeah let's um let's get moving on a little bit yeah um do you I just want to give a bit of background you know I, I met you many many years ago when I first uh, when I first entered recovery treatment for substance abuse I, I went to to shop the self-help addiction recovery program and um, it was so far back that a lot of people that know the foundation group or the foundation clinic won't remember that there used to be a tennis court there and um, with the local residents in the house, we actually invented a thing called soccer tennis. Um, and we played soccer tennis long enough until one of the dogs, Billy or Bobby, the two little black dogs, stole one of the, the soccer balls and, and punctured it. So that ended our soccer tennis. But, you know, even back then, from what I can remember, your, your approach to treatment and to substance abuse recovery was a little, little bit different or a little bit cutting edge. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Um, yes, gladly. Um, and you'll, you'll, you'll have to steer the conversation because uh, my fascination with addiction recovery really started in 96 with my own, with my own kind of uh, lens, if you like, that, that I cast on it. So what kind of worked for me, um, I would always advocate for until it stopped working for me and then I'd find something else. And uh, the treatment industry back in 96 was uh, the model was the 12-step model or, or, or therapeutically known as the Minnesota model. And the name Sharp I took from a rehab I was in in London called the Self-Help Addiction Recovery Program. So I essentially stole that name and then, and then took the Minnesota model and stole that. 
and basically created a treatment center that was based around uh, the 12-step complete abstinence approach. And once you're an addict, always an addict, and uh, the, the, we're in the grips of the disease of addiction, was ends are always the same, jails, institutions, and death, and it was all very much, you know, it takes one to help one. And uh, so a lot of it was about, um, you know, one addict helping another addict. Yeah. Then in 2000, around uh, yeah, the, the, the psychiatric industry started to take more interest in this. And uh, we moved from calling people addicts, moving towards nowadays we call them uh, people with substance use disorder not even substance misuse disorder it's now substance use disorder because the whole thing around addiction is and recovery is uh, the stigma around it a stigma based mental mental health so so people that have uh, been taking drugs for years have been oppressed and so for for people to get help they need to come out of that oppression and kind of declare themselves, yes, I'm somebody that's had mental illness and I've got this disease that lives with me for the rest of my life and all that sort of stuff. So that's where we were in about uh, 2007. Yeah. Um, I then did uh, some coaching work. And then I thought, well, what's to, to become an executive coach? And to uh, when I first asked what a coach does, is well, you kind of sit around and talk to people about their lives and where they're going. And I thought, shit, well, that's kind of what I do. I share my experience with other people, and hopefully, me sharing my experience, other people get to go where 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 they want to go. And so I decided to go and train in coaching. And then when I was training in coaching, I thought, shit, this would be really good for our clients at the clinic, at Sharp, as it was called at, at the time. And uh, so we started to, uh, or to, to take a recovery coaching approach to it. And this is when I broke away from traditional uh, treatment models, 12-step complete abstinence and started to find out around, about multiple pathways to recovery um, and to really just kind of look at and question what recovery is and, um, and, and to, to look at the client in a different way where you empower the client to take responsibility for what recovery is for them and how it looks to them based on their values, their lives, their meanings, and their purpose. Um, and then when you try and adopt something new, a new approach, a whole lot of people have a whole lot of opinions about it. Like, why do you want to change your approach? Why do you want to do this? Why do you want to do that? I then went off to university and then did a, a master's in uh, business and executive coaching. And my, my dissertation and my research was on the theory and practice of recovery coaching. And, and uh, so I started to research 
um, using the, the methodology action research. And action research basically means uh, it's a methodology where you try something, you see what happens, and then you go and make it better. And it's really, it's the right methodology, methodology to use for communities that are rising up. Yeah. And so, so that kind of brings academic credibility to the work that we've been doing because people always want to know, well, where's the evidence? Well, so I really started to explore and to, do, to explore this new approach called recovery coaching and, uh, and to just really define the difference between what uh, peer-based recovery is, mutual aid groups, so like 12-step programs, faith-based programs, and what makes a coach different and what makes a recovery coach different, and how that's different from therapists or psychologists or counsellors. So we find ourselves now 24 years down the road with a developing profession where, where, where people are starting to take coaching seriously and people are starting to understand what recovery coaching is. And, um, and uh, we've built a school that's accredited both locally in South Africa and internationally via ISO 17024 compliance because there's a whole lot of stuff around um, uh, working with people in their lives that are in crisis. Was that a long enough answer? It was definitely a long enough answer. There's the one thing that popped out for me early on in your answer there was stigma and stigmatization and you know, also being a, a coach myself and, and a counselor and walked a journey in, in recovery and addiction myself. I, I read a book by a chap called Johan Hari, where, you know, it's called, it was called Chasing the Scream, and he looks at the war on drugs, and he looks at the approach that we've had towards, towards addicts, and, and being in the industry yourself, and obviously looking at legislation, the way that it's changed in America, what they've done in Portugal, what they've done in Switzerland, um, Canada, can you see a correlation between the criminalization of drugs and recovery programs? So by what I'm saying there is the approach of the recovery program has that in a sense been dictated by the criminalization of drugs? So there are three ways to look at it. Yep. One, you look at it from a moral perspective where somebody's behavior is immoral and that uh, if they just uh, got right with God or spirituality and they became morally better behave, then the, the problem would go away. The second approach is the medical approach. Yeah, uh, these people aren't, aren't, aren't morally wrong, they're sick. And the medical approach came in to, to around 1779. There's a, 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 um, a researcher um, from the University of Chicago called uh, William White, and he's researched uh, mutual, uh, the alcohol treatment industry and self-help groups and all this. And we first started to look at alcoholism as an illness around 1779. So let's not treat these people as morally wrong. 
let's treat them as if they're medically sick because there's dependence, there's withdrawal, there's, there's tolerance, there's continued behavior in spite of negative consequence. So let's treat them as sick people. And the way society has treated people that have got this mental illness is either by punishment, crime and punishment. So let's beat people with a stick, let's put them in jail, let's tell them not to do things, let's create consequences to modify behavior. And that clearly hasn't worked. Um, and the way that society uh, uh, wanted to do that was by legislation around laws. So the first drug laws came in around 1924, 1926, when they criminalized marijuana and made it the same, same as uh, cocaine. So the way that they've classed different drugs and different, uh, and different substances to have different types of punishment. Yeah, so um, and then they realized that uh, all the criminals were getting rich from prohibition. So let's regulate alcohol. Let's, uh, let, let's make alcohol legal, but let's criminalize all other substances. And that was often based on culture and uh, and um, and uh, basically it was kind of white American Republican men that came up with 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 these laws that have changed over the years under the the various administrations. So there was un, un, under under the under Hoover, there were the the whole war on drugs was around um, communism. So, so, and then the 60s happened and then there was the Vietnam War and then under Nixon, he upped the laws around that to try and, so, so we've been punishing people. And then in the 80s under the Reagan administration, because of the so-called crack pandemic that was going to happen, uh, um, they, they, they changed the laws to, to, to like, you know, uh, three offenses and it's like life imprisonment or something or, you know, completely over the top. Yeah. And um, so in 2016, the, the, the United Nations um, has realized and acknowledged along with the World Health Organization that these drug laws are, are, are harmful not only to people that take drugs, but much more harmful to communities and, and, uh, and, and society at large. So who is trying to be protected by the so-called dangerous dope fiends? Yeah. So, so, so for example, 80% uh, of women that are in jail are in jail for drug trafficking, where they've, they, they've had to go and traffic drugs to survive. And then they get caught and they get arrested and they can't go back to their families. And, and then you've got children growing up without mothers. And, and so, 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 so the war on drugs is hurting way more people. So there's a, there's, a, there's a good course I did at the University of Geneva called Drugs, Drug Use and Drug Policy. And uh, I'd strongly recommend to go and actually uh, study that because then you can understand how the legislation has been put in place and how the World 
health organization is lobbying for the way that we, 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 we treat people with substance use disorder. I see. That's a, that, that's a very interesting way to look at it. And, you know, if I look at my own recovery and I bring it into this, I, I look back and I think there were so many relapses where I relapsed. And because of the stakeholders in my recovery, the family, the treatment center, I, I was pushed into a space of guilt and shame, you know. So I used, I wasn't a sick person. I was... I was a junkie. I was a criminal. And, and this is what was going on. Oh, no, using drugs again. You dope fiend. You, you know, you junkie. You belong in the gutter. So this is what I, the self-talk started to happen in my own mind. And it actually perpetuated my relapses for them to either be more prolonged or, in a sense, a more aggressive relapse. So when I'm looking at it now, and, you know, that's why I brought this, this question here today is, is because... I see the the impact that that has had on me. Then what happened was I I learned about coaching. I actually learned about coaching by another individual that qualified with you, and he coached me at a treatment center. And I, I was I was taken aback by by this coaching method. And then I ended up at your center one day a few years ago, if you can remember. Um, I actually gave you a shout from from a hospital and arrived there. I didn't. You were really surprised and you were laughing because I didn't have any shoes on. But um, <laughs> that was the time and that was the situation. Then a little bit soon after that, I ended up working my way and, and working at a center. I then did the coaching course. After that, I actually I messed up and somebody who wasn't even they had actually they'd studied the coaching but they hadn't qualified i was i was on the phone to them and i was struggling one day i wasn't using i was clean i was struggling and i said i feel like using and he turned around to me and i think he was the first person that ever did this and he said well if you feel like using then go and use a part of me started to listen to myself on a level by the way he said that and i said do you uh, it's almost like i turned around and i started to ask myself the question so i don't know if you can relate that to to the coaching yeah absolutely so so first of all uh we're, we're dealing with a stigmatized way of thinking and being that's been around for a hundred years so that's the first thing we, we we need we need to start to recognize so whenever uh, somebody would wake up in the morning they've got to go make a plan to to score they're always thinking shit am i going to get caught am i going to get caught so so that ingrained oppression yeah so it's 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 very similar to 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 um to people of color yeah that that uh, oh my god am i going to get murdered if i go out on the street today or or or, or with women yeah that always like am I, is, is somebody going to like am i am i safe am i going to be raped yeah so there's that that thinking that's been with us for years okay the second thing i want to point out is the word relapse is a a a stigmatizing word Yep, and the, the politically correct word is a return of symptoms. Okay, so life's stressful, you have a return of symptoms. Yep, but when you, you've been in a culture of recovery once, and you know what recovery is like, you never use again with the same unconsciousness 
All you know is that you're using and there are other ways. So, 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 so once you've come out of denial, yeah, once you've kind of acknowledged that you've got a drug problem, that when you go and use drugs, you just know that you're using drugs and that there's a, there's a possible problem here. Okay. Now, the thing with oppression, yeah, communities of oppression, communities of people that, that come together, continue that oppression. It's called an internalized oppression. Yeah, so so I can keep myself small. I can I can believe that everything that they told me was true, and like the prison door is open, but I'm I'm holding myself back. Yeah, and and uh, you can find it. This is just a phenomenon that happens with people. So, for example, um, you know. Uh, uh, a woman in the workplace might get promoted and becomes the boss. Yeah, she gets given leadership power, but then she goes around and queen bees all the other women, so keeps the other, the other women oppressed by becoming a hard bitch in the workplace. Yeah, it's, so, so, so that's how transformation doesn't happen because the internal oppression keeps carrying on. Does it make sense? So if we look at it with people with mental illness, yeah? So people who think differently, behave differently, learn differently, are pathologized and told they've got mental illness, you know, we're already like, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, that, that woman's not hysterical. She's got borderline personality disorder, yeah? David can't sit still, oh, he's ADD, or he's got ADHD, yeah? The, 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 so, so um, or, or, or bipolar, or depressed, or, you know, all these. So it's really, really complex. It's really complex. So what we're trying to do is to go back to the question, if it's your purpose in life, to sit in a corner and smoke a crack pipe and look for specks of crack on, on the floor and to think the police are going to kick the door in and to live in a height of paranoia. If that's your meaning and purpose in life, go for it, mate. And when you confront people like that, where they're at, they then say, oh, well, you know what? Maybe there's something else I could do. That's yeah. exactly what, what went through, through my mind when that person turned around to me and asked me that question. What if you really want to use, go use? So I turned around to myself and I said, do you really want to go and use? And a part of myself was like, no, I don't really want to go use. Well, then what are you going to do? So I didn't use and I felt better. <coughs> so which part of yourself did you turn to? Sure. Um, I would say... The, the well part of myself, the well part of myself confronted the unwell part of myself. Okay, well, let's not call it well and unwell, but let's just say like the part of you that wants to progress in its recovery, yeah, turned around to the part of you that's like, you know, fucking, because I mean, drugs work. They're great. That's until they stop working. 
until they stop working. So people can come to our rehab and they can stop taking drugs easily. Yeah. It's when they go back to their environments that the environments overwhelm them so much that they try to go back to the thing that used to work. Definitely. So our, our job at treatment, the way we measure success is how can we orientate our clients to a culture of recovery? Okay. So what has the addictive behavior taken from you? my self-respect, self-esteem, my finances, my health, my job, my career, my family, my, my, my well-being. Okay, so what's, what would you like to recover from that? Yeah? No, for Let's sure. How do you do that? Well, there are these resources in your community for you to make use of. It sounds very similar to, to, to something I heard from Dr. Gabor Mate that said, you know, we're always looking at what, what's wrong about the drugs. Why don't we look at what's right about them? And in that respect, what we get from them, you know, if I look at my own drug use, I, I had a sense of control. I could control the way that I was feeling. I could, I could escape. I could, I could feel warmth. I could not feel. So those were all the positives that I was getting from it. Now, where else am I going to go and get that? And, and, you know, when, when I started to apply that, I mean, you know, one of the, my great, I, I want to call it a, a sense of worship and it's a way of worshiping my recovery is by my trail running and my mountain running, you know, that, 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 and in that it creates so much capital for, for my recovery, you know, from mindfulness to goal setting to, you know, it's, 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 it's got such a good impact in my recovery in terms of giving me exactly what we're talking about is what, 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 why the drugs are working, that same sense. Hmm. So running is a great, is a great uh, way to meditate and relieve pain and to contemplate and to, you know, trail running, you're going on an adventure. It's like, um, it's, uh, it's like that, that Forrest Gump movie. You know, life got so much for him. Jenny left and then he just woke up one day and started running. <laughs> and he ran 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 and he ran, and he ran. No, for sure. And I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like a rush as well. So it kind of takes you to that edge, you know, that, 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 that edge. And I remember like wanting to go and score and then you're going to go and score and it becomes the whole ritual. You're looking out for the cops, you're calling the man and you get a little bit nervousness in your stomach because he's coming around the corner. You know, and he's just around oh, the corner and, he's got it. and when I'm standing on the front of a front line of a race and it's about to start and I know that I've got like a hundred kilometers ahead of me, I've got, uh, the sun's going to go down. The sun's possibly going to come up again. There's going to be wind. I've got a space blanket for emergencies in my backpack. I mean, all of this, it's quite a rush and you're standing on that front line and then off you go. So, you know, it's, it's almost like a, a, how would you say a positive, um, attribute to my life that the drugs were kind of doing the same but now here was something else more positive where and i get this question a lot is people say well haven't you just cross addicted or haven't you just replaced one addiction with another what do you think about that what do i think about that yeah 
No, mate. What do you think about that? <laughs> well, I, I don't think it at all. I mean, you know, it's um, it's it's positive in every respect. What What are your thoughts on cross addicting between um, drugs and something healthy like running or gym or? Okay, so first of all, I wouldn't use the word cross addicting. Okay. Yeah? Yes, because uh, the the so so. I'm like addiction is about being passionate about something. And then the passion goes and then you're stuck in a prison, a self-inflicted prison. Yeah. I, I prefer the, the, the Dutch word for slaughter or, or Afrikaans word for slaughter, which means enslaved. Yeah. So, 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 so when you're enslaved in workaholism, yeah, you're working all the time to avoid what's the, uh, you're numbing out to the pain of living the life of your dream. When you're in, enslaved in food addiction, yeah, you're numbing out life by 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 pushing down feelings with food. When you're enslaved by porn addiction, yeah, you're just numbing out by clicking every dirty picture there is on the internet yeah so that's so 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 addiction is what is imprisoning you yeah the fact that you get passionate about running and you run a hundred kilometers and you know and that fills you gives you meaning and purpose and excitement that's fucking great <laughs> The fact that you do it seven days a week and your children feel neglected and your wife doesn't feel loved, then we've got a problem here because your passionate behavior is impacting those people around you. I see. So, that makes sense. So the way that you measure an addiction is based on the consequences, not on what the person's taking. It's the consequences of that behavior. It's the consequences of the narcissism around the, the self-centeredness. I need this, I need this, I need this. I gotta do this. I gotta go to church. I gotta go to a meeting. I gotta go to work. I gotta check my cell phone. I got to so 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 my thinking is addictive all the time. Like I work all the time and my kids look at me, Dad, can we do something? Can you get off the computer? And it's and I gotta work at that stuff to try and force myself. So, so in a sense, I mean, you know, the, what we're talking about here, and it seems maybe that this is where the conversation's going, is that the practical application of recovery, uh, in in the sense in what we're talking about, can be applied to almost anybody. Yes, everyone's an addict. <laughs> <laughs> Every, every, and, 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 and this is where the, the stigma comes in because, because in, in the, the chain, it's like, oh, I'm not like those people. No, I'm not like those people. I'm not, oh, you're not like me, <laughs> you know, when actually, you know, we, we, uh, we can all relate. Yeah. Now the, the, to start any kind of healing journey with, with, a, with a coach or something, or a therapist or a sponsor or a doctor, the most important thing is the rapport of the relationship. That's the most important thing. 
So, so does the rapport of the coach and the coachee work? Yeah, that's 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 not the theory, not the practice, not the model. The most important element is rapport. So, people like me and you who have lived experience, we can build rapport quite easily because we go, oh, we know what it's like to be to be where you are. Oh, definitely. So, um, you know, that's why vertical coaching and my coaching practices, I want to take it, and this is one of my dreams, is, is I'm going to be doing trail clinics, so like almost like a, a weekend getaway where people can go away for three days, they can trail run, they can meditate, um, there'll be a coach that will teach them about trail running, and then I'll come in from the, the wellness coaching aspect um, and, and help them grow in those areas. So, so my dream is to take what I've learned and take it to everybody. Great. So, you know, that being said, now, David, what I've found and, and something that has really stood out to me is what you started with you act and the coaching training has, has empowered so many people. And at the moment, there's a lot of people getting empowered. If you, if you notice how many people are actually getting certified over this time during lockdown, I think it's because everybody's now got the time and, and the resources to, to finish off their certifications. There is such a continuum of 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 development in a sense that's going on with with you act and and people getting empowered. What is your vision with that? So the um, my idea was to build a rehab and to uh, own a rehab, and I got there and then I had a meltdown. I cracked. Everything fell apart. Yeah, so I realized that I needed a much bigger goal. Yeah, and so I've got a BHAG, which is called the Big Hairy Audacious Goal, which comes from, uh, what's it, I can't remember, Jack, somebody, Jack Walsh or something in the States. You gotta have a BHAG, man. And uh, so my Big Hairy Audacious Goal is to cure the world of addiction. Yeah. So it's one thing that I will never be able to achieve, but it gives me a goal that gives me a kind of a vocation for something that, that I can head to. Now, how do I get there? I need a mission. Yeah. And a mission is, is what you do. Yeah. So, so, and, and a vision. Yeah. So uh, a, a mission is made up of a vision and an action. So, so my vision is to have a, a world cured of addiction and the action is I train people, I empower people that they can go off and treat people. Yeah. So, so the goal of this, this thing is how can I train as many people, empower them so they can go and take their traumatic lived experience and turn it into an asset which is authentic to them. So your personal lived experience and your coaching combined with trail running, you're creating something that could help a certain part of the population find a culture of recovery for them. Okay. So, so, so technically, how do we do this? So now we've got to, to, to the idea is to have a, a pocket rehab. There's my phone. Yeah. 
and with technology and now with this virus coming along everyone has moved to the virtual environment okay right so now everyone in the world has access to this sort of knowledge now yeah everyone can be taught this yeah so we do do three things we train people in coaching yep and um and with the, the 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 internet and this connectivity we've created this global virtual school where all these students are coming together they're learning something they're creating containers of adult learning environments and more wisdoms coming out of that based on action research theory yeah so we are continuously building this plane as it's flying yeah and and uh i think we're doing a bloody good job seeing as we're not nobody funds us yeah uh you know it's not like we've got big government grants or or, or things like that it's just people getting up and saying oh shit, we've got to do something here no, and I think the, there's a very, very good job being done there. You know, I just, I recently, uh, I'm, I'm in the Durban area. I'm actually moving to the Cape soon after lockdown or, or after lockdown eases a bit. But I noticed there were some people that started doing the course down in, in Durban. And I know that you partnered a bit, well, didn't really partner, but empowered a, a, an institution there that's also rolling out to other parts of the country. And I think the, the marriage between the two of those created a synergy and, and people are talking, people are improving, people are applying the coaching principles you know, in the area. And I know that in Cape Town, it's, it's, it's starting to pick up as well and is quite instrumental down there. Um, you know, a lot with Nikki, who's, who's doing quite a lot of work and quite a lot of good work down there as well. Which is which is really encouraging. So I can definitely, you know, from my side as as being an addict and 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 moved into recovery, I can definitely say that I'm very positively impacted by impacted by what what you started there and and the legacy that you're trying to kind of leave in curing the world of of addiction. Um, and I feel empowered myself. And I must say that the last three weeks have been possibly some of the most interesting of my life because I've learned so much about marketing and so much about social media and about Facebook ads and about, because I, I've, I've had to do that because I've had to try and kind of get myself out there as a coach. And when I look back, it's, it's, it's purely because I believe in my product. That's why I've been so interested in it. And the product that I believe in is myself. And, and that's come from the coaching. So, so thank you. And I, I would definitely like to, to spend, you know, like, well, a good couple of hours chatting, but obviously we don't have all that time. But, you know, I want to thank you, David, for, for everything that you've done for the community and for what's going to continue to go. And, you know, just, just lastly, just to finish off, where, you know, just a couple of minutes, um, where, where do you see it going? Is there any plans for the future? Is there anything, any surprises behind the curtain? So we've got Pocket Rehab, which is in the States, which has a uh, hundred thousand users. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, that's uh, that's an app on its own, and we've linked that into the, the the Pocket Rehab Coaching Network. So where we train people to become peer recovery specialists. 
So that's the, the first that's the first step. Somebody that that wants to to give this a, a taste. Then if people want to proceed further, they can go off and become certified professional recovery coaches, which is what uh, you are, yeah? Or you will be, yeah? And then people can go on and train and become facilitators, yeah? And then we have the recovery wellness program, which is a three-week out patient program that people can run and attend from their own room their own kitchen, their own. So, so, so we create this global rehab that anyone, anywhere, anytime can get help. That, and that uh, it's accessible. Because the thing with the, the word clinic comes from French and it means place of bedside learning. So theoretically, we could turn everyone's bedroom into a clinical bed. Yeah. And so you can make treatment available to way, way uh, many more people because the, the, the treatment industry became exclusive. Yeah. In the, in the 60s, when it moved away from kind of 12-step stuff to, oh, no, you have to become a licensed practitioner. And, and that just means uh, fewer people then have access to professional treatment because it's a supply and demand thing. Sure. So that's that's really exciting, and I'm encouraged to see to see where it goes. So, David, thank you very much for your time. I always enjoy talking to you. Um, always enjoy listening to to you rant about your passions, which is always 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 entertaining. And um, always knowledgeable and always, you know, I felt like I've been, my brain has been fed in the, in the recovery realm. So thank you very much for your time today. I'm pretty sure a lot of our listeners will enjoy what you said. And, and I'm glad you've got a pair of shoes today. Oh, fantastic. You know, I've got quite a few pairs of shoes. Not only did I, I, not only did I get a pair of shoes, but I started running in the shoes. So that's fantastic. <laughs> Nice talking. Thanks for your time.